0: Section Eight of the Bachelor's Club by Israel Sangwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: A General Court. We were all so overwhelmed by this new blow that for some days we went about like married men. At last, we determined to dine it down and drown the remembrance of it in a feast of reason and a flow of soul. The eight of us assembled at the Hotel Cavour as the culinary resources of our Indian steward were inadequate to anything beyond sandwiches from the adjacent restaurant. After dinner we adjourned to the club, which was fortunately only a minute off, to hold a general court and listen to papers. The first paper was by Moses Fitzwilliams, the treasurer and legal luminary of the club, upon the centenary of the high hat. Moses is such a little spitfire that we had to nudge ourselves to keep awake, when you have an audience of seven it is not hard to fix them with your glittering eyes moses had the further advantage of being astigmatic so that he could subdivide the work and let each eye stand sentry over three and a half of the audience but he had to look at his manuscript sometimes during those precious instants we snatched segments of slumber at least the unobserved three and a half of us did we knew his essay was going to be published as a leader in the times For, like most successful barristers, Moses lived by journalism, and we thought we could just as well read it in print. But that is always the way with lecturers. They expect you to go and hear their lecture before it is published and to read it afterwards. If you don't go, they never forgive you, and if you do go, you never forgive them. As we composed ourselves not to listen to Moses Fitzwilliam's paper, we felt an acute envy of the waiters. This was Moses' paper, as reprinted by kind permission of the editor of the Times, the centenary of the high hat. Every Englishman is so anxious to celebrate centenaries, from the centenary of the cholera bacillus to his own. But I am lost in astonishment at the omission to celebrate the introduction of what is unquestionably at the head of modern civilization I mean, the high hat who when he first saw this ungainly article of headgear perched on the human cranium like poe's raven on the bust of pallas but would have laughed at the prediction it will be all the same a hundred years hence and yet so it is science has changed the face of the world fashions have come and cut and come again dynasties have been toppled faiths and forms have changed but the chimney-pot hat remains and still lifts its glossy glories to the wondering heavens the suns and snows of a century have fallen on it in vain it still stands like some mighty alp serene and steadfast in indomitable pride for its lofty supremacy high hats perish but the high hat remains immortal undying demure and black or frisky and white squat with broad brim or rakish with curly it is still the unchallenged monarch of the hats of philistia before which all other hats remove their wearers in respectful homage its surface manner may be beaverish or silky but its power is felt for every year of the century it has but added to its sovereignty till now it has become the seal and symbol of respectability and the hall-rack mark of a gentleman And yet, at first, its meaning was quite other. It was a reaction against Benjamin Franklin's simple Quaker's hat, and he who wore it was stamped as a man of progressive views and of liberalism to the race of hatters. Short people no doubt jumped at it, for it made them rise in the world by many inches at once, and then tall people were naturally driven to it to assert their superiority and to restore, or rather to redress, the balance. As for the medium sized people, how could they hope to make headway against a fashion everybody else was adopting? Thus the hat was enthroned in supreme sovereignty above all human crowns, till the fierce republicans and socialists, for whom nothing is sacred, began to revolt against its brow-beating tyranny. They indulged in high treason and low hats. They said the high hat must be crushed, and even the commercial cooperation of the operatic gibbous could not satisfy their anarchistic aspirations englishmen they cried could not be slaves and so long as this foot of cylinder was on their heads they were but as worms that grovelled so the lowly hat became what the high hat had started life as a mark of heteroxity and progressive views william morris walked across hammersmith bridge in a billycock Stepeniak boarded a sombrero and john burns was a man of straw and the disciples clothed their heads in their several ways till the funeral funnel became incompatible with the sound views on the doctrine of rent or accurate conceptions of the functions of capital and then one day there arose a bold revolutionary thinker who in the columns of the defunct english socialist magazine to-day asked why low hats should be the badge of all their tribe and the eccentric editor who himself wore a shockingly good high hat rejoiced and echoed why indeed and then there raged the battle of the hats the high hat has survived to-day and it will survive to-morrow it is ugly and it is heavy and it is surcharged with prosaic modernity you cannot imagine homer in a high hat nor shakespeare nor even hamlet but mr grundy will long go on wearing it because his wife orders it and you cannot get a divorce from Mrs. Grundy. The silence that followed Fitzwilliam's last words roused us from our reverie. We discussed his high-hat and crushed it and sat upon it. It was extremely rude of him to make such personal remarks. Did not Oliver Green wear a high-hat, and did not O'Rourty? But even worse than this insinuation of respectability against his fellow members was the implicit coupling of their names with Mrs. Grundy. As if a bachelor could be linked even metaphorically with a married woman joseph foggson m d b s c intimated that if the discussion bore out its early promise, there would be no time for him to read his scientific paper. The reminder that we had to face more papers so unnerved us that for the moment we were struck dumb before that moment was over. Fogson had commenced his paper, the red tapeworm. A comatose creature of the genus boar and constrictor, not to be confounded with its prey, the serpentine species, or the worm that turns in Hyde Park. Some varieties, especially the English, attain a monstrous growth. The body is composed of multitudinous rings of an official character, each spiral stripe resembling a piece of red tape. Whence the name? its heavy sluggish breath fascinates all who come near and reduces them to a state of topor as deep as its own its grip is fatal encircling its victim in the horrible folds It crushes the heart out of him and squeezes every drop of blood out of his veins living in a paradise of its own creation this sluggard snake is of course able to speak its voice is harsh and sibilant what it says is circumlocutory and paraphrasic. Its sentences are as involved as its folds. It covers up truth with a surface of slather. It makes promises, or rather it promises to make promises. It never performs unless under convulsion, and then it is so long about it that the people who yearn to witness the performance are dead and buried before it begins. It is hard of hearing, so languid are its nerve currents that if you try to set up a sensation at its tail, decades elapse before the message travels to the brain. Its flesh has the gift of persistent vitality. Hack it for months with pointed pens, grind it for years in the press, lethargic life still lingers in its slimy sinuosities. Cut it up how you will, each fragment assumes independent existence with the luxuriousness that comes of independence. Its maw swallows up millions. It never disgorges. It cannot do wrong and never does right. Loud applause greeted the tale of his short tapeworm. Life would be so much longer if art and literature were shorter. Hogson mistook the meaning of our applause and announced amid ominous silence that at the next meeting he would read a paper on two species of ringworms, the dramatic ringworm, *Vermis annulatus theatralis, and the city ringworm, *Vermis annulatus picunierius*. After that Israfel Mondego got up and left. He said that he had to sing at a conversazione at Lady Parrington's in Piccadilly, we were not sorry because israfel had done little else than stroke his beautiful moustache gloomily the whole time he had contributed nothing to the discussion but his ears he was always saturnine sad and picturesque especially after dinner and never said funny things like the rest of us he was the only member of the club absolutely devoid of a sense of humour When he was gone, Mandeville Brown observed that he had found out why Israfel Mondego was in so much request at Conversaciones. It was because his singing was such a stimulus to conversation. We all laughed. Mandeville expected it. But we all knew in our hearts that it was quite untrue, for no lady would have dropped a pin while Israfel was warbling his erotic nothings. That was why we hated him. The only virtue we could discover in Israfel was that he was a bachelor. Aurority took advantage of our good humor to ask whether any of us had been round the studios, the spring art epidemic being near. Green uncautiously replied that he had, when they were not square, but that in some cases, where champagne was on tap, the studios had gone round him, and then transpired that Aurority had ready an oration upon show Sunday determining to have a feast of reason is one thing but on top of a heavy dinner you find it rather indigestible we solaced ourselves by waking up the waiters and demanding lemon squashes one never knows said aurority musingly as if he had never thought of it before what a bore art is till show sunday spring comes and your artistic friends send you cards to view their pictures Why they do it can only be explained by their beastly vanity. Imagine an author sending out cards to his friends to come and laugh at his newest old joke, or to attend a reading of his great work on the conservation of the police force, or the Renaissance of Kamchatka, 1120 A.D. You can always write a friend a gushing letter about poems or a novel, but there is no call on you to read them why you should be dragged on show sunday to see what will either be visible at the academy or won't is beyond my comprehension an outsider would imagine that an artist would be disconcerted if his picture were rejected after he had cackled over it to his friends by no means acceptance covers him with glory but rejection puts him at once on the level with turner and other misunderstood gentlemen of the brush and he feels certain that Providence is raising the Ruskin for him somewhere, somehow. But I must admit that there are advantages in seeing a picture in the artist's presence. I do not refer so much to the excellent exercise it affords in mastering your emotions, as to the fact that you are provided with a ready-made guide to the painter's intentions, and that, without having the trouble of consulting a catalogue, you are able to learn whether the picture represents Amsterdam by moonlight or the Rape of the Sabines. When you find that the expression on a cardinal's face is intended for agonized remorse, and when you further learn that the face in question is not a cardinal's but an Egyptian mummy's, you feel a rush of aesthetic rapture in the contemplation of the lovely and the true, which you couldn't feel when you were under the impression that the mummy was a jolly old church dignitary. There is nothing so troublesome to remember as a classical legend— To this day I don't know whether Ulysses killed Aeneas or Aeneas killed Ulysses. I only know that one killed the other, or they both committed suicide, or were killed by somebody else, or ought to have been killed, or something of that sort, and that they were called pious for doing it. And so it's quite a treat to go and see a fellow's Atalanta and Pizarro, or his Minerva's Farewell to Mazzini and have him there to tell you the exact circumstances of the case how often in an art gallery i have longed to be dr william smith i wonder though whether he knows his own classical dictionaries mandeville brown hummed applause of course not he interposed a man who has written a learned book is like a man who has taken a degree in art or medicine or crammed up for some civil service once the book is published or the examination passed he lets bygones be bygones but what i have often wanted to know is why the academy private view is so called because it's not private or because it's not a view if it is both what is show-up sunday a private private view of course observed fogson m d b s c rather curiously your private views are just what you must keep to yourself in these occasions said mandeville but how much people care about art is shown by the newspapers which give more space to the description of the fashionable ladies at the private views than to the pictures the fashionable ladies are often the notablest works of art in the galleries said a and the best painted and the most deserving of hanging by the academy they patronize by not paying the shilling of the vulgar said mandeville nettled at aurority's taking the epigram out of his mouth one does not lead up to jokes for the sake of one's friends aurority unabashed continued to recount his artistic experiences he described the pictures of the forty most of whom it appeared were merely flattering themselves by imitating themselves he also read us some statistics on the number of pinafores, wooden chairs, rivers, cows, Greek maidens, roses, dogs, bull cabinets, snuff boxes, sand spades, buckets, and other common objects of the seashore he had seen in his travels, together with an inventory of the wardrobe, and wound up with a breathless description of his visit to an unknown artist. From the pretentious studios of Belgravia and the palaces of art at St. John's Wood, said he, "'I took the bus to Euston Road. "'Here in an attic I saw a poor struggling artist "'putting the last touches to a picture "'on which all his hopes were staked. "'He had not been trained in the schools. "'He knew not of the conventionalities of the academic art. "'His aged father leant over the oils "'and made them watercolours with his tears. "'Need I say the picture was atrocious?' So, as I am certain it will be in the Academy, there is no need for me to expatiate on its beauties, as I should have done had there been any. But anyone who wants to see pink sea-water in ultramarine cornfields may be recommended to buy it. This unexpected conclusion restored our good humor. Even McGillicuddy smiled, but Mandeville's smile was less genial. I will wager a sovereign you are colour blind, Orority, he said. "'Aroarty looked abashed. "'Nonsense,' he said. "'How do you know?' "'This made us roar and pacified Mandeville. "'We felt more convinced than ever that Rorarty was an Irishman, "'though we dared not tell him so. "'At this point McGillicuddy reminded us that we had again to face the problem "'of the falling off in our membership, "'and he called upon the secretary to make a statement upon the situation.' Mandeville Brown rose with a twinkle in his eye and a bundle of letters in his hand. "'I have received a number of applications for membership,' said he. We thumped applause and asked why we had not been told before dinner. Without replying, Mandeville continued, "'For the first time in our history, ladies are asking to join the bachelor's club.' There was a dead silence. Then Moses asked, "'Married or single?' Both, the married ladies base their claims upon the fact that they are bachelors of science, art, or music. The single ladies appear to argue that bachelor embraces spinster, just as man notoriously embraces woman, according to the Acts of Parliament. Quibbles, quibbles! I cried excitedly. Order, order, man! Said the Cuddy, when your house is on fire, ye maun snatch up a petticoat if you cannot find your breeks. We were all aghast. Mandeville went on. The list of applicants comprises, I take them as they come, Miss Sophonisba de Wallace, Herr Blarnium, Mister Van Dyke Brown, the Marchioness of Muddleton. Here we all drew a long breath and aurority a champagne cork. Signor Gamonio, Esmeralda Green. "'Mr. Bulvere Biddleberry, "'Mr. William Oldscore, "'Miss Pentonville, "'Lady Araminta Chapleton, "'one of Israfel Mondego's friends,' "'interpolated the secretary, "'taking pity on our open-mouthedness. "'Mr. Oswald Oddler, "'Mr. Joseph Sprinitkoff, "'Dr. Tom Talkie.' the pessimistic secretary resumed his seat evidently in high spirits i shall now in in accordance with custom said the president call upon the secretary to report upon the character of the candidates with a view to their being seconded if satisfactory the plump little pessimist rose again amid applause mr president and gentlemen I have the honor of laying before you the usual packets of condensed essence of life, the result of careful inquiry through stubbs and respectable married householders, supplemented by the Peerage, the Gazette, the Review of Reviews, Galton's Genealogies, and the Newgate Calendar. Miss Sofonisba de Wallace, married, degree of Bachelor of Music from a Norwegian University, latest Lisee of the Novelty Theatre, like Bismarck's decayed tooth is of German extraction, talent for the board's hereditary. Mother familiar with the plank-bed from girlhood, managerial instinct derived from father, who was born with a cast in his eye, began her stage career by playing chambermaids and Old Harry. First engagement of importance was to Mr. Seymour Smith, a respectable solicitor. Marriage a failure, miss de wallace went back to live with her mother who had in meantime been appointed oakum selector to the queen age uncertain twenty-first birthday celebrated last monday in figure inclined to edmund point and want of balance at her banker's complexion charming and her colour comes and goes in a way to betokens the vivacity of her disposition and the contents of her toilet-table drawer Plays all the chief parts in the plays she produces and collaborates with the most celebrated dramatic authors in writing them. We thought we could not have Miss de Wallace for her mother's sake. We could easily fill up the four vacancies without her. If Henry Robinson had not left us, we might have voted for her for the sake of his manuscript plays. I determined not to fail to write to him of the chance he had missed by his folly. Mandeville Brown ran his pen through her name and resumed herr blarnium bachelor also a german something not very particular in the city prime mover in the recent corner and corner man a black business talent with finance inherited from his father who was one of the earliest discoverers of kleptomania of herculean strength derived from his mother an adept at shoplifting speaks german detestably french as well as his mother tongue a gourmand and loves all his accounts well cooked we thought we could not have herr Blarnium for his father's sake mandeville brown ran his pen through his name and resumed mr van dyke brown bachelor received his art education in the atelier of a paris dentist where he learnt to draw teeth customers and his salary afterwards served a term with an oil man in cambrough and completed his education by making the acquaintance of several models in the shady groves of the evangelist greatest as a colorist his nose pipe and statements of fact are chests de doves first great picture exhibited in the back drawing-room of intended father-in-law's lodgings in stoke newington led to the breaking off of the engagement promise of his early career has been carried out so have some of those who have been privileged to view his pictures main works on exhibit on his studio classic the sneeze of the serpent apollo on olympus juno on washing day death of mother hubbard landscape under the strawberry trees sunset on saffron hill bathing machines by moonlight genre. "'study of an old tin-pot, "'the dustman's daughter, "'whiskey and water, "'a study of still life. "'We thought we could not have "'Mr. Van Dyke Brown "'for the sake of his intended father-in-law. "'Brown's matrimonial discussion "'had been sullied. "'The secretary drew his pen "'through the name and resumed. "'The Marchioness of Muddleton, "'married, Bachelor of Arts, "'diploma from Dublin, "'just started millinery and linen drapery establishment, the Marcus strongly objected. Said she spent enough on dress already. Among the features of her bonnets are to be the beaks of birds from her husband's we Will sell everything except underclothing, the sale of which she deems immoral and reprehensible. Gazette has her bankruptcy ready in type. Tall, fierce-looking beauty with green spectacles. In conversation, slow and stuttering but what she does say is beneath contempt extremely musical giggle but a warm human heart beats beneath her dainty lace and occasionally registers thirty-two fahrenheit fond of wagner and cough drops we thought we would not have her ladyship for her husband's sake we did not want scenes with him he was too grand for us to kick downstairs if he came inquiring after her with a horsewhip mandeville ran his pen through her name and resumed signor gamonio bachelor baritone very poor in early life weaned at the age of six months as an infant had a very musical cry though no one appreciated the music or the future in it once took part in an opera in the isle of man in conversation delightfully piquant a slang dictionary toils after him in vain the signor's favorite drink is water but from a spirit of self-denial he confines himself to whiskey, is a man of true artistic bonhomie, and will borrow half-crowns even from the Philistines. We thought we could not have Signor Gamonio for the sake of his creditors, Mandeville ran his pen through the name, and resumed. Miss Esmeralda Green, spinster, the popular authoress of Boometh as a Bumblebee, and other unreadable novels. Short stout spinster with the languid aristocratic manner of a persian cat and the moustache of an english guardsman an instance of precocious genius her distaste for grammar apparent even before she could speak plainly and when she could she became an awful liar talent from side of father one of the most inveterate advertisement canvassers that ever drew breath and the longbow never writes except on paper her chief work is done at the british museum and nothing puts her out so much as the librarian and his mercenaries at closing time esme as her friends call her is very fond of pastry and they attribute her success to puffs takes little sleep and even when sleeping protests against it through her nose we thought that we would not have miss green for the sake of her readers mandeville ran his pen through her name and resumed Mr. Bulliver Biddleberry, bachelor, member of the Flamingo Club. Originally a Collier's lad, he worked his way up to the top of the mine and ran off to London. Here he bought a bad half-crown to commence his career on and sold a publican. Soon after this, his unequaled slogging powers were first demonstrated in the great city in a battle royale with a woman. Talent like this could not go unheeded and Biddleberry was immediately taken up by that generous patron of all that has elevated the policeman. From the stone jug he passed to the prize-ring, where his claret-tapping capacities brought him fame, fortune, and a host of friends in the peerage, purchased a stable, and in his very first year carried off the blue ribbon of the turf by feeding the favorite with corn-plaster. Favorite occupations— figuring in divorce suits and singing drivelishly dirty comic songs at the Flamingo Champagne Fights. Reason for applying, he is a member of all the clubs that will admit him. And B, Since writing his application, he has died. Alas, said Aurority, we are but as shadows in the hands of the reaper, and even prize-fighters must melt away as gossamers before the breeze. May the earth lie as lightly on him as he lied on it. We said amen, but thought we could not have Bulver Biddleberry for the sake of his undertaker. Our secretary drew his pen through his name, and resumed. Mr. William Oldscore, composer, widower, though representing himself as a bachelor. Enough, thundered McGillicuddy, turning as red as a turkey-cock in his indignation. Oh, let's hear what further depths of villainy he has sunk to, pleaded Fitzwilliams we did our best to pacify our outraged president and the secretary went on no better example of hereditary musical genius could be adduced for his mother was a wholesale dealer and organ-grinders monkeys and his deceased wife's sister was music mistress at a deaf and dumb home is still a young man having been born in newington butts in person is florid and stumpy and his upper lip is prematurely bald BUT THE LIGHT OF GENIUS THAT SHINES IN HIS GLASS EYE ATONES FOR ALL. Tastes NAIVE AND SIMPLE. HE CAN SIT LISTENING TO HIS OWN MUSIC FOR HOURS AT A STRETCH. WE THOUGHT WE COULD NOT HAVE MR. WILLIAM OLDSCORE FOR THE SAKE OF HIS DECEASED WIFE'S SISTER. Mandeville drew his pen through the name and resumed. Miss Pentonville, spinster, charming woman, with lovely hair and without a fine Roman nose— which she lost in a street accident fifty-three years ago an ardent patroness of masked balls is now forty-five and considerably in advance of her age is possessed of considerable debts in her own right she has courage of her opinions and a good opinion of her courage and having also an atrocious french accent and a fondness for underdone stakes aspires to represent cripplegate on the county council we thought we could not have Miss Pentonville for the sake of her constituents. What a blessing it was that we had so many candidates to select our four from that we could waste with them the royal carelessness and extravagance. Mandeville drew his pen through her name and resumed: Lady Araminta Chapleton, spinster. Her at homes are among the most successful functions of the London season and would be more so if she were out. At these receptions all that is most famous in literary and art circles, all that is most beautiful and noble in London society, is conspicuous by its absence. Lady Araminta is herself a wonderful talker, and has a heap of reminiscences at her finger-ends, where those familiar with the language of her afflicted class may read them. Although she is deaf, few things are more musical than her laugh, a scratch of a slate-pencil is however one of them chiefly employed in attending on an aged pug-dog in politics has always sided warmly with her brother the hon george walters whose premature decease before birth was a heavy blow to his country in the family Gamp, her ladyship is still on the right side of sixty and her buoyant vitality is only depressed by the dread that she is among those whom the gods love We thought we would rather not have Lady Araminta for the sake of her pug-dog. Mandeville shrugged his shoulders, and, drawing his pen through her name, resumed. Oswald Adler, bachelor, among the men out of town, without whom no premier is complete. He undoubtedly holds a first stall. He talks entirely in epigrams of the species which he has himself defined as pertinent impertinences, should you send him a private letter he will publish it in his paper and charge you with a craving for the publicity and with the cost of setting it up in type is awfully smart because he is often made to by the victims of his epigrams or their authors boasts that he writes plays under nomes de plume and managerial compulsion but the statement like the indian juggler and the loafer's wife is entirely unsupported is famous for championing the undivided skirt for gentlemen and has a sympathetic admiration for the human calf, in spite of his intellectual activity, is physically weak and is only kept going by overdoses of insect powder. He will soon be quite gone, his death will leave a blank in journalism which it is too hoped nobody will draw. We thought that we would rather not have Oswald for the sake of his physicians. Mandeville unperturbedly drew his pen through the name, and resumed. Joseph Sperenitzkoff, bachelor, now living in retirement in the back bedroom of an old Kent road, but once regarded as the great European firebrand, indeed his impassioned articles on the magnumical review still served to feed the flames of discontent in the domestic hearth, has inherited his revolutionary tendencies from his mother, who was a famous waltzer, his very first entry into the world was characterized by a wail of discontent and his nurse was in the habit of mounting through the attic trap-door to sun herself on the tiles he cried aloud from his house-top at a very early age joseph was carefully educated as a conspirator is familiar with all branches of the profession not excluding the gallows-tree from which he has had many escapes wanting in breadth his hair is a fiery red of the exact hue of the sun through a november fog though as it was cut off in a fever its present whereabouts are unknown kings call him a bald bad man his eyes are twins and traces of prehistoric smallpox cast a halo of holiness over his martyr's countenance the great disciple of rousseau loves to return to the bosom of his mother earth and may often be seen rolling in the gutter on such occasions he is visibly moved by the brutal force of a priest-ridden plebs. is only five feet high, but dislikes whelks. We thought we would rather not have Joseph Spirinitskov for the sake of the police. The secretary silently drew his pen through the name and resumed. Mr. Tom Talkey, bachelor, for many years director of Ananias's agency. He originally studied for the law and has taken silk— in the expiration of his sentence for this offence, toured the country in a wig and a musical troupe, is a staunch foe of temperance, and has pleaded with the rights of drink at many a bar. One of his legs is wooden, but he has never written for the magazines. His head also is a chip off the old block. Nothing false ever comes from his lips except his teeth at bedtime. Only thing he earned honestly in his life was his father's dying curse." which he invested in railway stock we thought we would rather not have tom talkie for our own sakes then mandeville brown smiled sadly and sat down go on go on we said encouragingly we felt kindly towards mandeville brown he had extracted the essence of the candidate's histories very neatly indeed and by his skilful presentation of the facts had saved us the painful distractions of dubity We could not be too careful as to whom we admitted into the bachelor's club. "'There are no more,' he said. We looked at each other. "'Nonsense! Why, there must be dozens,' replied incredulously. "'Look,' said the little pessimist laconically. He held up his list, a succession of black parallel lines. There was not one candidate in the running. They were all scratched.' we were intensely annoyed with our stupid secretary and called him names by which he had not been christianed we inquired why he had not told us we were being reduced to the extremities of the lists and stated that he had sacrificed truth to epigram we also called his attention to the fact that the devil was not so black as he was painted mandeville replied that the old gentleman had not presented himself as a candidate though strictly eligible and a seasoned bachelor McGillicuddy then called for silence in another lemon-squash, and suggested that the names of the male candidates whose characters as bachelors were purest should be written on slips of paper, put in a high hat, which, he remarked severely, was highly useful for such contingencies by virtue of its depth, and four should be drawn out by Moses Fitzwilliams. This being done, the following gentlemen were declared duly elected as candidates. Mr. Oswald Audler, Mr. Van Dyke Brown, Signor Gamonio, Mr. Tom Talky, The secretary was forthwith instructed to write to them, asking them to forward the usual non-marriage certificates and enclosing a copy of the rules up to date. After reading the minutes at the next formal meeting, Mandeville stated that he had received replies from the three first-named gentlemen, withdrawing their applications as they had been misled to the nature of the assurance system in connection with the club, as for Tom Talkie, he had in the interim again joined the Junior Convicts Club at Portland. End of Section 8